Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18+. plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. He calls democracy messy. Props up the Chinese Communist Party. Praises Xi and his regime known for violent oppression, invests in Chinese military companies. A defector? No. It's BlackRock CEO Larry Fink, the CEO of a major American company who's gone all in on China. Can he be more anti-American? Larry Fink, BlackRock. Taking your money, betting on China. Message paid for by Consumers Research, an independent educational 501c3 nonprofit organization. Log on to www.consumerresearch.org to learn more. No fear. No political correctness. No wokeism. You're listening to Underground USA. My campaign for president, I made a commitment. I made a commitment that would provide student debt relief. And I'm honoring that commitment today. Using the authority Congress granted the Department of Education, we will forgive $10,000 in outstanding federal student loans. In addition, students who come from low-income families, which allowed them to qualify to receive a Pell Grant, will have their debt reduced $20,000. Today, 20 million Americans have learned that they will never pay another penny on student loans. I'm going to keep pushing for more because that's who I am and I think there's a lot of good we could still do. And so we're going to have 23 million Americans who for nearly three years now have not paid anything on their student loans. That money's been working its way through our economy. I have offered a series of amendments to strengthen the bill, which uh, have not succeeded. Bottom line is that you have a bill which does some good things. We put some $300 billion into clean energy. And at a time when we face an existential threat in terms of climate change, this is a step forward. Bottom line is I'm going to support the bill because given the crisis of climate change, uh, the environmental community says this is a step forward. It doesn't go anywhere near as far as it should. It is a step forward. So with the Inflation Reduction Act, Democrats have announced an historic down payment in the fight against the climate crisis. Today, I want to talk about how the Inflation Reduction Act would tackle 
two of the major costs that fossil fuels inflict on American families and on the federal budget. First, the cost of public health, and second, the cost of natural disasters. So let me start with... Senate Democrats striking a deal on a massive spending bill aimed at reducing inflation. What a dichotomy. Yeah, I don't really think it is, but I'm going to read. You read that and we'll go with that. All right. Senator Joe Manchin touting the Inflation Reduction Act as a bill. As we prepare for the onslaught of propaganda that's coming our way from both sides of the aisle, During the lead-up to the midterm elections, we all need to take a step back from the preferred narratives being foisted upon us by the political left and mainstream media and ask ourselves one question. What has progressed under the progressive movement? Keep in mind that the progressive movement is a political movement, an ideological movement that has very little, if anything, to do with the actual progress our society has made over the last 120-some years. In fact, the innovations made from the early 20th century on, the nascent years of the American progressive political movement, were achieved despite the emergence of the progressive movement. The advent of progressivism brought forth the age when academics, theorists, and so-called experts were positioned to the seats of power without being elected to receive that power. Under President Woodrow Wilson, a progressive Democrat, our federal government transformed from one of true representative government to one of centralized bureaucracy enabled by representative government. During this time, the heavy hand of the federal government regulatory process was born. The prevailing wisdom of the elitist, read fascist, ruling class was that experts knew better what was good for society than the people, including those elected to office to craft legislation. It was at this time that Congress started crafting very loosely worded legislation, leaving the minutiae of the said legislation to be codified through regulation, regulation not specifically laid out by our elected officials. Today, this is how the CDC, the EPA, the SEC, and every other alphabet agency, department, and commission is able to issue edicts with the weight of law. And at the advent of progressivism, the elites in the federal government, including the newly empowered expert class, also began to embrace a contempt for the average working American. This is evidenced by the codifying of the 16th Amendment, which laid waste to equal and equitable taxation and instead created the progressive tax system, which treats working-class Americans very differently depending on their income. Those who possessed a progressive mindset at the movement's genesis were typically urban, northeastern academics of the upper and upper middle class, Protestant reform-minded people, the same demographic responsible for moving prohibition into law. They believed, as they do today, in the ultimate superiority of man over all things, including the environment, the free markets, and their fellow citizens. In fact, before the First World War, 
just about every aspect of society was abused by progressive reforms. Unions appeared on the scene, and while legitimate workplace concerns were rightfully addressed, there were no political caps or meaningful limitations placed on the unions. The organizations exploded onto the scene without safeguards in place to protect all of the people involved in the marketplace, labor and or management. Over time, organized crime saw the allure and claimed a huge footprint in the unions, and corruption, violence, and even death ruled that sphere. Today, the unions are just as disruptive and opportunistic as they were when organized crime syndicates ran them. And while progressives crowed about conservation, hiding behind the skirt of Theodore Roosevelt's love for the open spaces, that open door led to today's opportunistic and disingenuous climate change movement, a movement completely steeped in a quest for transformative power, and not to electricity-based power, but a quest to fundamentally transform the United States of America from a constitutional republic to a one-of-many cog in a globalist scheme to erode the sovereignty of nations. One need just to take the time to read their own words about the Great Reset to understand that they are doing this, in real time, right in front of our faces. The overall unequal treatment of American citizens also began during the genesis of the Progressive Era, with political and ideological deference given to the urban poor. Progressive politicians realized they could control the outcomes of elections more easily if they catered to the urban areas, catered to the massive demographic that was the urban poor, a political meal ticket when juxtaposed to the rural poor. Today we see the result of this effort in the grotesque and disingenuous political favoritism played out in the balkanization of our citizenry, of just about every demographic that has and can be created. Identity politics is used by even the most intellectually stunted of community activists and organizers or aspiring politicians, of which we've got a lot. And those in power raid the treasury under the guise of establishing social safety net programs and benevolence to bribe these demographics into voting for them, bribing them with tax dollars. But perhaps the most egregious achievement of the progressives was the passage of the 17th Amendment, which gave people the ability to directly elect their U.S. Senators. In the form of government our framers crafted for us, the U.S. Senate was supposed to represent the states, not the people. The House of Representatives was the chamber with a direct relationship to the people. It is for that reason that congressional districts are relatively limited in size, so voters can have access to their elected representatives. The Senate was meant to protect the interests of the states in the halls of the federal government. Article 1, Section 3 of the U.S. Constitution states, in part, The Senate of the United States shall be comprised of two senators from each state, chosen by the legislature thereof, for six years, and each senator shall have one vote. The reasoning behind the legislative appointments came from the notion that if senators were beholden to the will of the state legislatures, they could be recalled if they place their party politics ahead of the well-being of their respective states. 
This was important for the maintenance of state sovereignty, and to maintain the state's ability to hold the federal government in check. Case in point, Obamacare, the TARP bailout, COVID restrictions, and the laughably named Inflation Reduction Act would have never, ever been passed because they all bled the state treasuries on unfunded federal government mandates. A pure Senate would have rejected those measures outright because they were all unfair to and levied undue burdens on the states. But that protection was lost after the passage of the 17th Amendment, which states, in part, the Senate of the United States shall be composed of two senators from each state elected by the people thereof for six years. Today, the U.S. Senate is simply an over-glorified version of the House, completely owned by the political parties and devoid of any allegiance to the states they were elected to represent or to the protection of their states from an overreaching federal government. So as we approach the midterm elections and set the stage for the all-important 2024 general election, we need to dispense with the media-preferred debate narratives that juxtapose the Republicans against the Democrats. It's not a choice between Republicans and Democrats. Quite frankly, a lot of what they do is all the same. It's a choice between the realization of the progressive movement's endgame or the return to individualism and sovereign rights. Instead, we must see these upcoming elections as referendums on the overall direction of our country and these main questions. Has a progressive agenda served the people of the United States? And are we willing to sacrifice individualism and our rights to an all-powerful central government? Do we want to continue down a path to a place where a centralized government, ruled by unelected experts in the many departments, agencies, and commissions under the executive branch, controls every aspect of our lives, even as they incrementally remove our freedoms? Do we want to continue down a path to fascism, where the federal government enlists behemoth private sector industries and financial entities, like Google, and BlackRock to enforce societal change that couldn't be passed through Congress into law? Do we really want to enable the progressives? And the correct terminology here is fascist, by the way, by definition. It's not name-calling. It's by definition. Do we really want to enable them to continue moving our nation down the path of delivery to the globalist elite, to the demise of our sovereignty? to our subservience to unelected global tyrants like Klaus Schwab and his cabal at the World Economic Forum? Do we even want to contemplate a world in which the global elite have made it economically unfeasible to farm our own land, raise and bring to market our own livestock, and fish our own seas, only to force us into eating crickets? And if you think I'm kidding, you need to understand the World Economic Forum-backed UN Agenda 2030, and the Holt Prize-winning Aspire groups. It's real. I don't know about you, but I'm not into eating crickets. Do we want to continue down that path? 
or do we want to reclaim our rights under the Constitution and the Bill of Rights? Do we want our freedom of speech back? Do we want to be secure in our persons, houses, papers, and effects? If we value individualism over Orwellian groupthink, if we value free markets, stable currency, prosperity, opportunity for all, and equal justice, if we want to protect freedom before it's gone, then we have to make sure progressives lose and lose big in the upcoming midterm and general elections. And then we must, as Sololinsky taught the group thinkers of the radical progressive movement, we must keep the pressure on those we have elevated to power to do what is necessary and begin the dismantling of the unconstitutional centralized government apparatus the progressives have brought to us. And while changes at the federal level will only stop the bleeding, that hemorrhage control allows for true reformative change back to constitutionalism. To form a bottom-up solution crafted by the states and brought into effect by governors who understand that once freedom is lost, it's lost forever unless you expend the blood and treasure of something like an American Revolution. So, for me at least, the choice is clear this November and in November of 2024 and in every election that comes after that. If you entertain anything about progressivism, you must be defeated at all costs. You're listening to Underground USA. My name is Frank Salvato. We'll be right back after this. Did you know that Yopon is the only tea plant indigenous to the United States? Hi. I'm CJ, the owner of Emerald Coast Tea Company. We have a line of Yopon teas and Yopon tea blends that will open your eyes to tea that is literally made in the USA. Check out our entire line of teas at www.emeraldcoastteacompany.com. Honey, this ain't your mama's tea. Please like the episode on the platform you're listening to us on, leave a comment if it lets you, and share us with your friends and family. Our influence grows when you share our podcast. And don't forget to sign up for our Substack, which comes directly to you, subverting the interference of the internet gatekeepers and social media censors. You're listening to Underground USA. My name is Frank Salvato. We'll be right back after this. This podcast is a production of the Compass Point Group. Hey, this is Judson Carroll with Southern Appalachian Herbs Podcast. One thing Frank always reminds me to mention is that my books and my podcasts are not limited to my region of the Southern Appalachian Mountains. I'm a master herbalist with a working knowledge of hundreds of herbs that are available all around you no matter where you live and keep your family in optimal health. I'm now offering a free newsletter through Substack. Please find me on Substack at Judson Carroll Master Herbalist or JudsonCarroll.com and I look forward to communicating with you in the future. Thanks. Thanks.